0: Fry the chicken hearts, fry away, fry away, Mm -hmm. take them out, add your finely diced onions, some garlic, some chili, tied up rosemary, a bit of bay, and then let that cook for a bit, like sofrito cook, so it's nice and soft in olive oil, and then add your pancetta, let that fat start to come out a bit, and then red wine to deglaze, scratch the pan, get all that good stuff off the pan, add your tomatoes, I had a, a wonderful head chef named Sky, who I worked for in London, and I think she said it best in that Mother Nature does the hard work, we just have to not fuck it up. And it's probably about as close to a philosophy as I come to.
1: Welcome everyone, this is the Into the Wilderness podcast, and I am your host, Byron Pace. This is a Modern Huntsman production. This is episode 208, and I am... I was going to say a little late, but actually an entire week late because it should have released last Thursday. So my apologies, but uh, I had to jump on a plane with like 12 hours notice um, to go on assignment last week to Norway. And it's something that I will be able to share with you, but probably like way towards the end of the year. It's a a very exciting, very exciting project, that's about all I can say right now. Uh, But there's a lot of content to come out of that. So you keep your ears and eyes out for that. Um, I'm sitting here, strangely, back at my desk at home in Scotland, in my office, which has been a rare thing over the last couple of years. Um, it's a very warm, muggy day. Uh, the garden is looking really quite beautiful. All the flowers are out. The bees were buzzing, but it's just started to rain. Uh, but I am actually heading out hunting tonight, which is kind of exciting because I haven't managed to put much time aside to do some of the things that I love, like going and watching wildlife, going hunting, going fishing. This evening, I'm going hunting with my friend and hunting companion Eden Anand. Uh, We're going to go and see if we can find some Robux. Uh, And then over the next two days, I'm actually going to be casting my fly line which is gonna be fantastic because I haven't, I have cast a line a couple of times this year. I was actually fishing with uh, Mr. Tyler Sharp, who has obviously been on and off this podcast many times uh, in Texas uh, only a couple of weeks ago. But casting a fly line in Scottish streams for brown trout is just about the pinnacle of fly fishing for me. Uh, So I'm gonna be doing that in the next couple of days. But in this podcast, you're gonna hear from Lloyd Morse. Lloyd owns the Palmerston in Edinburgh, which is a truly brilliant restaurant uh, where the focus is very much on the raw ingredients of what you're eating. Um, As of this recording, just like a couple of days ago, his restaurant was just named one of the top 100 restaurants in the UK. So congratulations to Lloyd and the rest of the team at the Palmerston. Um, I can testify to how awesome the food is because I actually went there to go and take some photographs and record uh, a little bit of audio in the kitchen to put this podcast together and put an article together and they cooked for me. And it was some of the best. In fact, it was the best venison I've probably ever eaten. So if you're in Edinburgh, look up the Palmerston and go there. And maybe ask for Lloyd in the kitchen just to bother him and make him come out onto the floor and speak to you about ingredients. So you're going to hear about his backstory and the journey from field to plate as we head out hunting with podcast friend and one of your favorite guests, Sam Thompson. Uh, But before we get to that, some exciting news. We have not only completed the next volume of Modern Huntsman, which is Volume 9, but pre-orders are now available on the website, and it will be shipping imminently. So head over to modernhuntsman.com and subscribe, or you can also order individual copies. But if you subscribe, you're guaranteed to get your copy because sometimes they run out, um, but you also get it at a discount. Um, Believe it or not, there is uh, amongst the chaos of the world, there is also a global paper shortage. So it took us about two months just to get hold of the paper that we (laughs) we needed to print this volume. So not quite as many have been printed as normal. So make sure that you don't miss out and head over to the website and order a copy while they're still in stock. Over the coming weeks i will share some story insights as to what's coming in this volume uh, but what i can tell you right now is that uh, previous and much loved guest sarah roberts has an amazing article in volume 9 all about sharks in the uk head over to modern huntsman's instagram account and you will be able to see a couple of the layouts and spreads just to tickle your fancy and hopefully It'll encourage you to head over to the website and click the button and order yourself a copy if you are not already a subscriber, because I know a lot of the podcast listeners already are. And just before we jump into this interview, a thank you and shout out to this week's top tier Patreon supporters who include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of Rdcontracting.co.uk, James Marchington, the guys at South Ash Stalking, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and Colin Knight. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. That's me. Uh, and if you have any suggestions for guests, and I've had a couple in the last couple of weeks, uh, if I haven't replied to you and you've emailed or messaged with suggestions, it's only because I've been traveling and insanely busy, but the, I have read them and the names of anybody you've suggested are on my whiteboard for people to contact. Uh, so you can find me on social at Byron J. Pace pretty much anywhere, or you can email Info at paceproductionsuk.com. And lastly, I would very much appreciate if you can share this podcast with friends, however, that might be over a beer or shared on social. It is the best way to get the show into people's ears. So share with a friend. Lloyd, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm so pleased to have you back on and that you agreed to come back on because you and I had an amazing conversation that no one will ever hear. In the Highlands yeah. at Sam Thompson's place because I think I start and stopped the recorder and didn't notice it wasn't recording. I don't know. We're going to go with that instead of me just not. Well, no, we had like five seconds of podcast, <laughs> not one hour. <laughs> so thank you for coming back on. I,
0: I, You're very welcome. I explained to a friend of mine yesterday, I was like, we'd been on the hill all day. A bunch of deer had been shot. It had been amazing. Been a big walk. And then it was like, we came back, got a cup of tea, sat by the fire, it was so atmospheric. And then it was like, 40 minutes in, you just suddenly looked down and went, <laughs> shit,
1: not recording. Yes, uh, that's only happened one other time before. Uh, and the, it just the card was just corrupted. Like we'd finished recording and... It didn't write anything to the car, but it was actually recording. But in any case, I have you here now, and we've actually had a chance to spend a little bit more time together since the recording that that we did that no one will ever get to hear. Um, yeah. I met you for the first time a couple of weeks ago, I guess, and we were up on the hill, and like you said, we were we were actually hunting deer. And then I saw you t- two weeks ago, I think, um, at your restaurant in Edinburgh. Um yeah. so that's going to be a lot of what we're going to talk about today is this this idea of wild produce from the hill to the plate to people's plates particularly at your restaurant the Palmerston in Edinburgh which I have now eaten at so now see now I'm in a better position because now I can say I, I don't have to pretend like your food is good because I have actually <laughs> <laughs> I have actually eaten fantastic uh, food at your restaurant but before we get into all of that let's try to
0: spend my whole career with people not pretending that my food is good
1: <laughs> actually, no, um, but before we get to all of that, tell me a bit about your background because you have you have a funny accent, Lloyd. So you're clearly I not do. from here, um, but you're very much integrated into, uh, you know, what the, the the landscape here when it comes to to food and eating. So tell me about your background.
0: So I grew up uh, about two hours west of Sydney, Australia, obviously, um, in the Blue Mountains. I. Grew up with my brother and my mum. Lots of hunting and fishing and camping and hiking and all that kind of like running through the scrub. All the all the things that young boys do in Australia. Um, And I've been living in the UK now for about twelve years, and about three of those years have been in Edinburgh. My wife and I we moved up here. We made the decision after living in London for long enough that we wanted to get out. And I've always loved Scotland. We we came up and down here this time that we were together and it just feels more like home than kind of anywhere else that I've been other than Australia so yeah big 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 fan of Scotland but um yeah I lived in London for about nine years I, I worked in many different restaurants across the, uh, through Sydney and I mean I started I started in kitchens when I was about 15 as the majority of chefs do just washing up and then kind of progress from there and go Further and further into your career, and next thing you know you're in your thirties and you're still in kitchens
1: <laughs> still in kitchens, but running a restaurant now yeah, uh, that's true where did your uh sort of drive or fascination for wild produce come from? Did that come from your childhood?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, um my dad's a fly fisherman by trade, he's a photographer and writer as well, but it's all around fly fishing so we really i really kind of like got into it through dad through fishing and then my brother and i were always really into hunting we used to hunt as a three with um my brother and his best mate chris and um it was just always that being out in the wild and you know shooting goats and then cooking goat and picking watercress out of the out of a river and making sandwiches out of that and or picking mushrooms it was just like we were just always out there like doing the kind of field craft and I think my family in general have a bit of a like a love for food. You know, so people people say they love food but you know, if you get all of us together within seconds the conversation has turned to food and we're discussing food. So it was kind of like inevitable. I'm amazed we don't have more chefs in the family to be honest.
1: <laughs> Is it just you?
0: Yeah, just me. My my dad worked in restaurants for a while. He's a similar. My mum worked in restaurants for a while. Uh, when my brother and I were young, and on my my dad's partner Monique, her her family are all ex restaurateurs. She's from Bordeaux, and her sister opened probably the first proper French restaurant in Sydney back in the like I think it was the early sixties, something like that. So it's 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 in the family, but people people go to university and have proper jobs rather than work in restaurants where you don't make much money. <laughs>
1: what was what was that uh, career progression like for you because my only experience of uh, chefing and uh, being in a kitchen is, well, being in your kitchen, uh, and then uh, Gordon Ramsay on TV. That's, <laughs> is, it, is it, I mean, your, your kitchen's a very friendly place. Uh, there's nobody throwing uh-huh. knives across the kitchen counters. But what what was your experience? Did you have, I, I imagine it must be a wide spectrum, you had some absolute golden human beings and some complete assholes as well.
0: Oh, such a mix, such a mix. So like I said, I started in kitchens when I was about 15, washing up uh, in a big hotel up in Katoomba where, near where I grew up. Uh, and I just kind of you move on from there, you become a prep chef. And in Australia, there's this wonderful apprenticeship scheme. So you spend four years as a as an apprentice, two and a half of those years, you're at college, uh, one day a week with the other four, four, five, maybe six days a week at work. So you're getting you're getting theoretical practice and you're getting um, on-hand practice as well. So it, it's a really amazing way to set up. I think it's probably the best way that a chef can learn how to cook because you're you're only at college one day a week and you're learning loads. So I worked for some truly scumbags, but then I also <laughs> worked for some real great people as well. Some of what you see on TV is true. Um, I've, I've always had this joke that you can't make a real movie about Working in kitchens, because what it really is is standing around for about eight hours a day at a bench, prepping food and chopping things and cooking them so I don't think it's ever going to turn out to be a decent movie about cooking um, but yeah, I went through my apprenticeship in Sydney, worked in a few different restaurants, uh, bounced around all the place, started to get i was in my quite early twenties then, so started to get a real an idea of the kind of food that I enjoy cooking and and the kind of food that I wanted to be around. So I worked in a, a restaurant called Key, which is opposite the Opera House in Sydney. It, to this day, is still probably one of the best restaurants in Australia. Like an incredible team. I worked pastry. And then I went and ate somewhere, an Italian restaurant on the other side of town where they were butchering sheep and goats and doing lots of pasta. And I was kind of like, no, no, this is this is where I want to be. I don't want to be anywhere near fine dining food. So... Made made that course progression in my career and kind of kept doing it and and have kept as far away from fine dining as I could since then. So more about more about butchery, more about where your food comes from rather than what you do to it. And and I had a a wonderful head chef named Sky who I worked for in London, and I think she said it best in that Mother Nature does the hard work; we just have to not fuck it up. And I think. <laughs> And it's probably about as close to a philosophy as I come to.
1: I think some of the you know some of the time that I've I've spent with you and speaking to you about food and produce and where it comes from and and exactly that that quote that you told me the first time we met uh, it, it very it feels very chef's tablely. Like, have you seen Chef's Table?
0: Oh yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I, I thought you would have. Because you know, each one of those people there have very uh, it is a love of food, and most of it is a love of um how food comes into being and them seeing themselves as just the vehicle to present it to people, which is very much what very much what I the impression that I got when I was in your kitchen.
0: That's that's a lovely thing to hear first of and Thank you. But yeah, I I think that the more time you spend finding good food and finding good producers, the less time you have to do anything to it. I mean, you know, sometimes you just roast a bit of meat and put a nice salad with it, and that's enough. And that's, you know, everyone's favorite food memories. Yeah, sure, you can go to the best restaurants in the world and they're great. But everyone's like, you remember that sandwich or you remember that, like, that time that you grilled some steaks while you're out camping. There's a great French saying, which is, um, it's better to have spaghetti than friend. It's, please excuse my language. It's better to have spaghetti with friends
1: than caviar with. C- <laughs> and it's so cool. I'm definitely going to have to beep that.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: sure. <laughs> no, <laughs> but 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 oh, I, yeah. I I know what you're saying.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, spend more time trying to find where your food comes from and do less to it is is really what it comes down to. I'm um, at the Palmerston. I've spent. I mean, I spent years before we even had a restaurant site, meeting people, talking to people, going to farms, just getting to know people, so that getting to know producers and and just people in general, so that I could find the best, you know, or the majority of our veg comes from uh, either between Edinburgh or the borders. The majority like the vast majority of my meat, which is something that we'll talk more about, I know who's either raised it or who's shot it. And that person, if it's been farmed, it's gone from their farm to the abattoir. They've picked it up and then delivered it to my restaurant. And I know these people. I'm friends with these people. I have dinner with these people, you know. So, yeah. But more time finding where food comes from. Do less to it. It'll just taste better.
1: (laughs) So how did you go from working in restaurants and working for people to – where you are now, opening up a restaurant in, in a part of, I mean, Edinburgh is one of my most favorite cities in the world. I might be slightly biased because I'm from Scotland, uh, but I did live there for a while and it is a beautiful city. But you're in such an awesome location. It's As it turns out, I used to walk right past where your restaurant is every morning for three years when I worked in Edinburgh. And probably uh, not shit coffee. <laughs> I, I probably did yes because that's what was there before so how did how did that come about Lloyd because it's it's a big uh, undertaking you know I see famous stories in the papers all the time of famous chefs with their restaurants going under all the time uh, so it doesn't seem like a business that I would really want to be in because it seems incredibly risky but you're doing it how did that happen
0: I think the statistics something like I'm completely plucking this out of the air, but I think the statistics a third or a quarter of the restaurants fail in the first 18 months, something along those lines.
1: Wow, okay. It's a its a,
0: oh, it's a hard industry. It's a really hard industry. You've got massive overheads. You've got massive wage bills. People are assholes to you all the time, <laughs> and you're just doing your best and you're running off like – exhaustion and passion and that's about it. Um so my business partner, just just to head back to my restaurant and away from a rant, um my business partner and I, James, we've known each other for years. We met in London, just like in each other's work and restaurants and pubs and that kind of thing, just getting to know each other. Um I moved to Edinburgh with the idea we wanted to open a restaurant, but wasn't really looking yet because I didn't know the city. And I met James one day in the Bow Bar, and we were having a chat. And he said, "So, what are you doing in Edinburgh? Like, what's what's your plan? What, what are you going to do up here?" I said, "Well, I want to open. I want to open a restaurant that isn't up here, and it sounds really wanky. But to me, Edinburgh's got some of like the best fine dining restaurants in the UK, and then it's got the best like greasy spoons and crappy cafes and wine bars and that kind of thing. <laughs> but for me," the- there was always something in the middle that was missing, which was that just like a really simple casual restaurant, you could go into by yourself and sit at the bar and have lunch. You know, somewhere you could go for lunch by yourself is like the epitome of a perfect restaurant for me. And so James and I were talking about this for, you know, an hour or so before he went to the rugby and he went, all right, cool, I'm in. I was like, sorry, what? And he said, yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. I'll give you a call on Monday. Let's open a restaurant. I was like, okay, let's just do that. We'll just... We'll just open a restaurant, it'll be easy. <laughs> so, James and I got talking about it, and this was uh, end of 2019, like you know what's coming. So, we spent a few months running business plans and working it all out, and then 2020, <laughs> and the whole world fell apart. They might wow. this must be get brought up so many times on podcasts.
1: I mean, I try and I try and avoid it, but um, but yeah, I, <laughs> it's kind of inev- inevitable because the last two years have been such a shit show. But why? Wow, I mean, that's gutting, though.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're incredibly lucky because really we've got an ex bank in the West End of Edinburgh that is an absolutely beautiful restaurant site. We've turned into a beautiful restaurant site, and we got it because no one else was trying to open a restaurant at that point in time. People were saying to me are you insane every restaurant in the uk is shut down and we are like haggling over the lease (laughs) you know so tenacity man is how you do it um so yeah we we looked at through 2020 we looked at so many restaurant sites across edinburgh we were constantly seeing them. James was living in London, so he was coming up and down for work, um, seeing as many restaurant sites as we could and chatting to people and getting to know so many estate agents and just back and forth, back and forth until I was chatting to an estate agent around the corner from my house about a site and it was crap and the rent was through the roof and, and he, I shook his hand and left and he just said to me just as I was leaving, he just kind of yelled out, he said, do you know Café Noir in the West End? I was like, I'll take it. I have wanted that space for so many years, and we went up and saw it, and we had a chat, and we had a chat to the lawyers, and we had to get surveys in, and it that was the tail end of uh, no, that was kind of mid 2020, sorry, and it took about nine months to finally sign, after because every survey we got in, every architect we got in, it was like it it just took so long, and really it worked in, it worked in our favour. Really Byron, but like we were quite lucky that we didn't actually sign a lease in twenty twenty but because we probably would have failed completely being a startup business. But we're lucky that we opened up in twenty twenty one. We opened in August and um it's been great. It's been really wonderful. It's been it's been everything I would hope it to be.
1: Well, it, it, I love the vibe inside that place. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's in, it's in a great location. And uh, it, it's also a benefit that the food's rather good. Um, but, before, but it's one thing having an amazing space that is inviting and people want to spend time in. But once you had that space, the next phase in my mind is, okay, we need to now make amazing food. And so this goes back to what yeah. you were saying earlier about, well, where do you get all that food from? How do you, how, on where do you even start with that on a, on a scale of a uh, restaurant?
0: I mean, chat to other restaurateurs. you know, get, I've, I've worked in a few restaurants around Edinburgh and you get to know suppliers and Edinburgh is a pretty small town. Like right? they say the hospitality industry is really small in Edinburgh. It's even smaller because it's not a big town and there's, I mean, despite the fact Edinburgh's got more restaurants than any other the UK city per capita, but, like, it's still a small, a very small industry. So you start talking to people and and really probably the best way is social media. You know, I've met so many farmers who are online and, and, and selling their wares and putting up photos of animals and produce and, and cheese and milk and veg and anything they can, fish and crabs and everything, you know. so. Work in a few restaurants, start talking to people, go out and meet suppliers. I've met uh, Patricia, who runs a wonderful company called Fantasy, who uh, she's just in East Lothian. She's grows a, amazing veg, really beautiful veg, but and it's all organic. But what she does on top of that is that she acts as kind of like a co-op for a lot of other farms in the area. So she'll buy en masse potatoes or onions or parsnips or spinach or whatever and she'll email me a big list and every Sunday night and Wednesday I fill that out and then it gets delivered. So it's not just coming from her one farm. She, She buys from everywhere else, which means that, yeah, like I said previously, the vast majority of our veg comes from between Edinburgh and the borders, so on the border between England and Scotland. We do get some stuff from Europe, but the majority of it does come from this area um so it's just about pressing the flesh and hitting hitting the cement and getting out there and meeting people and and just getting to know people is really but it.
1: is it not the case that i mean that sounds so work intensive does it not cost it you a whole heap of time and time is money to be able to do that would it not just be easier to i'm, I'm sure that there is large wholesales that will just dump stuff at your door every couple of days rather than trying to find all of these small suppliers.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, I get I get a phone call. There's a veg supplier in Edinburgh who I utterly despise, and I get a phone call from their rep once a week being like, oh, Lloyd, I'll send you the price list. And I'm like, stop calling me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want fennel from South Africa and chicory from Eastern Europe. And, uh, like, I want to know where my stuff comes from, which is what – it's what we do, yeah. It's hard to work, but at the end of the day, you know, what did you have? You had when you ate at the restaurant. You had a you had a deer chop with um celeriac and that Mazuna salad. No, with, yep. with chard, chard, and yeah, and the chard. Um, the seekers from Sam up north. The chard was from Fantasy, and the celeriac is from her neighbour, East All East Lothian. I love that. I, I like to know where this comes from because it's just going to taste better. It's such a simple thing, but honestly, yeah, it's hard to work. But once you're once you're in with these people, and once you're locked in with them, and and you've got respect for them, and they've got respect for you, you know, you're just going to get good stuff from them. a place and order, and Patricia knows if something crap's going to come in, she's going to hear about it, and I'm going to send it back, and then she's going to get the shits with me, and I'll get the shits with her, and then we'll call and make up and have a long chat, and it'll be fine. But this is. It's a relationship more than anything with your suppliers. I've got guys I speak to every week. I've got guys I speak to once every fortnight. I've got guys I speak to once a month. You know, but it's really a relationship, and that relationship is what makes the food taste better because it's they're growing a beautiful thing, and they want it to go somewhere nice, and I want to put something on a plate that's been a beautiful thing grown in the ground. You know, I feel like I'm ranting on a bit, but no.
1: (laughs) I want to talk more about the meat in particular because that's, and particularly the the venison because it's a a really interesting story there and, of course, that is... The first thing that you and I did together when we were doing photographs for the story that's actually going to come off the back of this podcast was, was up, indeed, yeah. up in the Highlands, north of Inverness, and uh, we were out on the hill at Sam Thompson's place, who's a, a regular contributor to this podcast and a very good friend, uh, and we were hunting, and that meat was going from literally your finger on the trigger to the restaurant. How did you meet Sam? How did that relationship come about?
0: Uh, so Sam used to do a uh, game week with a restaurant called Lyle's in London. And again, Instagram found out that this this big man up north, this haggard type creature <laughs> up north, he's so big. He's She's going to love that. Man. Sam, the biggest human I've ever met, sat down with Sam one day and he had 10 eggs for breakfast. He's just a monster of a man. Anyway. I found out that Sam was doing this game week where he would uh, go out with a bunch of chefs. James Lowe, who runs Lols, would get chefs from all over the world. They'd all go up to the Highlands and shoot and fish and stalk and trap and do everything they could, and and then they'd go back to uh, London and they'd have game week where they'd do a whole uh, cook a bunch of dishes that were inspired by their time up north. Now, the food's very different from the food I cook, but it still was my introduction to Sam. And I got married uh, three years ago, uh, July 2018, a bit more than three years ago. Um, and when my brother came over from Australia for the wedding, I was like, let's try to go stalking. Let's try to see if we can shoot something. So I emailed Sam and we had a back and forth. And then my kind of like, mind the pun, stag weekend was going out with Sam trying to shoot a deer. And it was unfortunately the hottest summer that Scotland had seen in years. And we saw, I can remember clearly, we saw two hinds, and that was it. We spent two days out with Sam where we saw no deer because it was just too hot. (laughs) So I got to know Sam through that and me and him always kind of stayed in touch. And then when I moved up to Scotland, it was more like, I want to come out stalking with you. And so we kind of like retouched base here and there. And now that he's on um, Kildomore, it's a lot easier. I can go up. You know, it's only a few hours drive, and I can go out with him, which is what the, the plan is to do that more and more. But I've been out with him a few times now, and he's just great crack. And I know you're going to love this, this, Sam. He's just great crack. He's such a knowledgeable guy. I've, I don't think I've ever met someone like his age who was so knowledgeable in his uh, in
1: his career. It's
0: pretty, it's, it, it's quite impressive.
1: He's definitely got an old head, an old head oh, on a young yeah. body it's it's quite a unique thing for i mean it's it's one thing the chef or the the person who runs a restaurant knowing where all the different produce comes from it's quite another where you're it's like one step more you're even more hands on yeah. than that in so, in some respects when it's particularly when it comes to the venison sometimes not all the time because you're busy working in your kitchen where you're actually yeah. going out on the hill and you're seeing these deer walk the hills or walk the forests and following the whole process through from living to lying on the ground to being processed to in the larder and then down the road to your restaurant. Tell me what, what that's – because most people have never experienced that, Lloyd.
0: No, I mean, yeah, it's true. A lot of – the vast majority of chefs haven't, haven't experienced it. Um, but, I mean, we should probably talk about meat in general at Palmerston because it gives people a better idea. At Palmerston, we, we, I, I and we are very committed to only buying – Whole animals and whole carcasses, and that's because it's better price point. That's because you're buying directly from a farmer, as I was saying. So, like my mate Jack, who's up in the crook of Devon, he'll call me and he'll take a couple of um, he'll take a couple of hogget or mutton to the abattoir and then deliver them whole. But for me, it's really important more than anything else that like young chefs see that this is a whole lamb or sheep, or half a cow, or pig, or deer, or rabbit, anything. I've worked in so many restaurants where the idea of buying a whole animal is just scoffed at. And it's insane to me. It's absolutely insane. So we only buy whole animals. We All the chefs do the butchery. I mean, I'm doing a lot of... We've been open seven months now, so I'm doing a lot of butchery training at the moment. But everyone's getting it. Everyone's, everyone's picking up skills. Um, we probably go through, you know, a sheep a week or we go through a cow every couple of weeks, um, a cow every few months and we do all our own butchery and we can make decisions from there of what we want to do and how we want to do it and we might cut things differently and we might butcher things differently so that, you know, one day we do a, a whole a whole leg of lamb or the next day, you know, we roast a whole leg of lamb or the next day, Oh, we're a bit quieter for lunch, so we'll break it down into mussels and we'll cook those mussels individually rather than a whole, than a whole thing. So with that in mind, buying directly from Kildomori Estate, it's, it, it must be said as well that it, it's quite rare that an estate has the game dealer's license. And, that, and therein is really the trick because if, if they didn't have it, if Sam didn't have access to that game dealer's license, it would be completely illegal for us to buy Deer straight off the hill. And of course, there's plenty of restaurants around there that buy deer off some guy who's got them in the back of a truck. But we, of course, at the Palmerston, would never do anything like that. We buy our meat directly from the supplier. <laughs> um, so, so we're really lucky that Sam, when he got that job, he's got the he's got the game deal's license. So, uh, traveling up there and and watching people pull the trigger and getting to pull the trigger and seeing it go from g- you know the, the deer that we saw that, you know Sam later sold to the restaurant. You know it's it's a wonderful thing to see it growlaks there on the hill and then skinned in the larder and then it's hung there for a week or so and then you know it gets delivered to the restaurant. It's 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 a beautiful thing for me. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, yeah, just yeah, I, I I love it, man. I love it so much.
1: So let's talk specifically about seeker because I think a lot of people think that venison is just venison. It's deer and it's kind of all the same and it's kind of not <laughs> and uh you you buy a lot of seeker from sam w- why is that now and i, I, I has <laughs> always been my probably my favorite of the deer species to eat uh, but i think that that chop that i had at your restaurant is probably my favorite seeker meal that i've had of all the seeker that i've eaten
0: <laughs> oh wow oh thanks man that's that's from someone who I assume is eaten a lot of deer. A shitload um, of
1: deer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, you know, conservation, man. Deer deer in Scotland, everyone knows the deal. Everyone knows that you've got to stalk them, you've got to hunt them, you've got to keep those numbers down. But seeker deer are just fucking rampant. They are everywhere. I mean, you drive across the estate and you just see them everywhere. Despite what does Sam call them the grey ghost or something like that? The Japanese name is the yeah, because they're the not native. Ghost. They're not native, so they're a Japanese variety. They, I don't know what it is about on that estate because I've eaten Seeker before and it's never been that fatty. I don't know. It's because it's because Kildomura is in the absolute middle of nowhere. But man, the venison we get from there, the the animal, the carcasses we get from there. They're so fatty. There's like an inch layer of fat on the on the rump cap, so on the on the back hand. and it's just incredible. They are the most delicious thing. You know, you get so many people that are like, oh, "I'm not really into venison." And you're like, "Yeah," because you've probably eaten some nasty old red deer that's been sitting on the side of a hill. <laughs> like just. Just just trying to keep warm for, you know, six years and then finally someone shoots it. You're like, yeah, no wonder just not tasty. As opposed to this little thing that's like I don't know, twice the size of a labrador that's just running around in the pines the whole its whole life, you know, barely going out on a hill, eating delicious things and not getting caught in the wind. So I I, I think that the fat's got a lot to do with it. I think the seat are just unbelievably delicious things. I've tried to explain to someone the other day. It's like It's like a cross between lamb and hare. It's very gamey, but it's very kind of lamby at the same time. The fat's got that kind of waxy feeling in your mouth that that sheep fat has. It's fucking delicious and it grills really well. It doesn't, like, burst into flames like lamb fat does on the grill or like beef fat does. Uh, So, yeah, we try to get – Sam's obviously got pretty much a zero tolerance on them up there, so he's got them all the time. We just try to get them whenever we can. We've got a bit of a co-op happening with a bunch of restaurants in Edinburgh, so uh, Scott, who owns Fjord, um, he's got a refrigerated van because he delivers veg to people across Edinburgh. So their refrigerated van dries up to Al Ness they fill it with deer and then they drive back down and they they then deliver to a bunch of restaurants across across Edinburgh. And that's to keep costs down because obviously like it is a best part of a four hour drive up there. I think it's a four hour drive, something like that. I'm a really slow driver, so couldn't tell. Um yeah, I think Jacob could drive down in about three three hours or something like that. <laughs> there is something I think special about seeker that come from that state and come from that part of the world because I've never really tasted venison like that before. It, it's it's well marbled, meaning that it's got fat running through the meat. It's got massive caps. I mean, when you cut a chop, it looks like a lamb chop. Like it's got a cap of fat across the top of a loin that heads round to the belly. It's just delicious. It's absolutely delicious. And, you know, go back to the original thing, let Mother Nature do the hard work. And I just got to butcher it and sling it in a pan for a minute.
1: When you're writing the menu for your restaurant and you're putting game on there, what what is the uptake like by comparison to beef or pork? Is it something people want to eat?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, particularly with venison, there's something about putting venison on a menu in Scotland that you'll sell it. I mean, we put on. It's funny. This Saturday night we had I had a braised lamb shoulder on, and I had a seeker haunch on roast, like grilled grilled seeker haunch. And we kept a tally on the wall because we were like, lamb always sells. Lamb sells like gangbusters. You'll always sell out of lamb. But we were like, all right, these are good, these are the two things that sell the most. And they kept pretty much eye-to-eye most of it. But the venison took it at the end by, I think, three or four. But that was, you know, we did an 80-cover night and we sold nearly 20 portions of venison to, I think, 16 lamb, which is the vast majority. You know, you think 80 people, that's a, a quarter of the people ate venison that night. Um Generally, game yeah, game sells. Partridge sells really well. Uh, wild rabbit sells really well. Wild rabbit sells far better than I thought it would.
1: I'm amazed, particularly the rabbit, because I, I never th- I thought that a lot of people up here didn't really have. Uh, they weren't particularly adventurous when it comes to eating at a restaurant. I have to admit, when I go and eat in a restaurant, because my freezer is full of venison. I normally don't eat game (laughs) when I go to a restaurant. I very, very rarely eat game because that is the rest of my year is pheasants, partridges, and venison.
0: I do think that maybe some of it is that there's fear around cooking game, is that people think, oh, it's going to be dry if I cook at home. And if you don't treat it right, it will be dry because it is something that's spent its entire life running away from predators and hiding. So... I do think that maybe there is this kind of like stigma, a bit of a fear, but I think we should definitely be cooking far more game at home. I mean, if you talk about it from a sustainability point of view, people should be cooking game all the time. You know, pheasants are the perfect example of like how many millions of pheasants get shot every year and how many actually get sold and eaten. You know, restaurants do their best to sell as many as they can, but I think there should be something in supermarkets where there should be a drive for for selling pheasants over, you know, caged hens and caged ducks and caged anything else
1: mm. well I think that has changed actually I think that has changed a lot in the last yep. couple of years yeah I know definitely because uh, we, we used to export a lot of that of a lot of pheasants and partridges to Europe but um, just anecdotally yeah. from the few estates around me now they don't one they don't even send them to the game dealer anymore because the game dealer wasn't giving them really any like very little money for them in fact there was a period where A couple of years ago, where they were actually charging to take game away because it just wasn't the market or there was a glut in the market. So a lot of estates started actually processing themselves and then giving them to the people who were shooting packaged. Well, So obviously not the ones they were actually yeah. shooting, but from like the day before or the week before, they'd give them packaged, the package. And then the people who yeah. help on a shoot day, whether that be beaters or loaders or whatever, <clears throat> they would normally be saying, you know, would you, would you like some venison? And so there's a, quite a big estate near me that literally doesn't have a single pheasant left at the end of the season. And none of it goes to the game dealer. And there's a lot of places like that. So I think that that has actually completely changed in the last couple of years for a lot of places. That's fantastic. That's great yeah.
0: that's I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, Yeah, because you, I mean, at the end of the day, you're talking about something that's lived and been shot, you know, for sport. So you don't want to, you hate the idea of something being wasted, don't you?
1: Oh, no, for sure. I hate the idea of meat being wasted. I mean, talking about waste and restaurants, I always imagine that um, it must be quite difficult to keep waste down in a restaurant just because of the scale that you're buying stuff on but i saw from spending a bit of time with you because you tend to buy whole carcasses and you're you're doing a lot of the the trimming and the processing yourself that that certainly seems to be one way of really reducing the amount of waste that comes out of a a commercial kitchen
0: oh yeah absolutely so I mean, when you so so Byron obviously came and spent time with us and we we butchered a deer and and I've got when I'm so I've got say the haunches and I've got three tins, uh, three three containers. One is my prepped meat, one is my bones, one is my trim, and the only thing that really goes into the bin is the glands that you can't eat that taste horrible and make everything bad. Um, so. I'm I'm prepping it as I'm portioning meat into sizes that I can cook for two to three people I'm trimming them and I'm keeping all that trim and all that trim then goes into things like sausages or faggots or terrines or ragouts for pasta or something like that so I think mean, that's another one of the reasons why and then, sorry, and then, and then the bones are going into stock and being used to braise the large cuts of meat, the shoulders, the neck, the breasts, the belly, the things that need long, slow cooking. So when we're, when we're buying whole animals, again, we're going back to we're giving ourselves the choice that we can do whatever we want. I can take, you know, I could take a haunch and turn it into sausages, right? I could very easily do that. But you can take a haunch, portion it down, get your. You know it's a, a pretty big back leg that you get off of Venice, on a off a seeker deer you can turn that into uh twelve fourteen portions but then you've got a, a you get a whole heap of trim that goes with that you take that trim and you do other things with it you know it's just it's just common sense cookery for me you know you throw everything through the mincer and then you do something with it or you stick it in the freezer and you keep that for a rainy day because i mean it's the thing about buying whole animals is that every now and then you suddenly look in the fridge and you're like Oh, no, it's one of those days where you're like, I haven't got deer for coming for a week. I haven't got a sheep coming for two days. That beef isn't right yet. I'm like, right, what have we frozen? <laughs> so mince mince becomes faggots, mince becomes ragouts. mince becomes sausages. And and we're always trying to use that the veg and, and bones obviously like I said stock so so meat's not a problem the biggest kind of problem for for restaurants is veg waste and packaging waste packaging waste we fight in that because we buy from local farms uh, we get almost everything in big um, big paper uh, ba- not paper bags what am I trying to say sacks big paper sacks so so all our root veg. All our potatoes, our our celeriac, our onions, our parsnips, carrots comes in big paper that we can just stick in the recycling. And then everything else is coming just in trays that we then return back to the farm. So we fight that really well. Going back to what we were talking about with a regular veg company that are going to deliver to my door every day, it's all going to come packaged. It's all going to come in plastic bags. It's all going to come in – a lot of it's in like um, – I don't want to say shrimp, like almost backpacked. Um A lot of veg comes like that. It's, it's insane. You've got, you know, um, garlic coming from China. You've got garlic coming from India. You've got garlic coming from everywhere in the world. You've got ginger coming from Peru. Like it comes from everywhere. So when we buy directly from the farm, we immediately drop down how much packaging we're going to be putting in the bin, which at the end of the day makes – makes makes sense for the business because we're not spending loads of money on waste getting thrown away every day. We, uh, James and I, made a decision that we were going to try not to use single use plastic. So we don't use cling film in the kitchen. There's less waste immediately. Kitchens go through thousands of miles of cling film every year, and we just don't use it. You just completely take it out of the food chain. So, veg trim is the kind of like last thing of that we use a waste company where it all goes to it doesn't go to landfill they have a zero landfill policy so it goes into compost it goes into anything like that it can and then on top of that i've got two people that we give veg trim to one of them are one of our suppliers so it's a farm just outside of Edinburgh in the Pentlands called the Free Company. They have pigs, sheep, and cows. They've recently just got sheep and cows. uh, And they grow an unbelievable amount of veg all year round, even though they're in the Pentlands, which is in the hills essentially outside Edinburgh. So we try to return as much veg we can to them. And then on the side, and I'm hoping that no environmental officers are listening to this because I'll get into trouble for it. On the side, we give a lot of our veg trim to one of our butchers who then feeds his pigs with it. Now, those pigs eventually come back to us because he farms them, he turns them into bacon or whatever, and then we buy it from him. So a circle economy, particularly with veg trim, is where I'm trying to get to. We give to the free company, they make compost, it goes on our veg, they give us the veg, we make veg trim, it goes back to them. So I'm trying, you know, we've only been going for seven months now, Byron. So this kind of like build up of circle economy we're trying really hard to to happen more and more, but it's it is hard work it's really hard work, particularly with with pickups and drop offs and and you know big cases of veg trim sitting around fridges or in cellars things like that because you don't want rats and you don't want mice, so you've got to be really careful with things like food with uh veg prep with veg trim but yeah we're we're trying our best to make a as circle economy as we can, but but still working for the restaurant.
1: Do you find that people who eat at your restaurant are curious about the sourcing at all? Do you get, because it's something I do and it's, I suppose sometimes I'm just being difficult because I want to know if where I'm eating they actually know and invariably the people serving don't know and then sometimes they never bother to come back to the table uh, but I'll ask where stuff comes from. In particular, I'm always curious to know about the salmon, which I re- completely refuse to eat um, here in this country anyway, but I always ask that question if they know where it comes from.
0: Just a blanket comment there that if you're in a restaurant and you're serving salmon, there's something greatly fucking wrong with you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You've heard it here first. But do you find that people want to know? They want to know where their venison oh. comes from occasionally or beef or whatever?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We get I mean particularly in Edinburgh where there's a big wait, sorry in Scotland where there's a big culture of stalking and hunting. Um we get a lot of people who are like Killmore estate because I'll write Killmore Venison or seat car and people nice. be like where are you getting that from and then quite often I'll happily go to the table and have a conversation with with them. Uh we do a briefing before lunch and before dinner every day and we'll do a run through the menu and I'll remind everyone where the meat's from whether it's all our sheep come from uh Balkaski Estate in Fife, we get our we get our beef from there as well, or whether it's coming from Jack and the crook of Devon, or if it's coming from uh further further south, or even from Sam, you know, we run through everything so that, so that if guests have any questions, the, the front of house will always do their best to kind of explain where it's from and the reason why it is. You know, you get Christ, pork chops, pork chops are my favorite cut of meat, right? And people will get a pork chop on a plate and they'll eat the eye, they'll eat the loin, and they'll leave the rest of it. And someone will say, oh, it was a very fatty piece of pork. And you're like, yeah, it's because it's led a great life in Fife, living off like organic um, brewery matter, having a great time, like, and it's got loads of fat on it. Like, you should be so happy that you get a pork chop that's covered in fat rather than something that's got no cap on it whatsoever. Like, Relish in your pork fat people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> pork fat is great. Yeah, we do. I don't really like eating it, but I like <laughs> stuff that's been cooked in it. Oh, I love pork fat.
0: I love a pork <laughs> chop so much. Give me that fattiness. Um, <laughs> so so yeah, we do we do get a lot of people asking um, asking where it's from, and it's it's also just part of our restaurant that we'll we'll try to put things on the menu so that people know where instinctively where it's from and it's easily Googleable. <laughs>
1: That's good. I, I, <laughs> talking about pork, I wanted to ask you about something. When, when I was in, the, in, yeah. your, in your restaurant, you were cooking two pig heads. Now, most people would think, wouldn't think would think to themselves, oh, I'm going to go to the butcher today. I'm going to go and pick myself up a pig head to go and cook. What on earth do you do yeah. with an entire pig's head?
0: Oh, man, it's the best. Pig's head is the best. It's the most underappreciated. There's a wonderful chef in London called Fergus Henderson. If you have any interest in cookbooks whatsoever, go and buy a nose-to-tail cookbook. It is one of the best books ever written, and it really changed food in the UK. Fergus said very early in his career, if you're going to eat a pig, it's only polite that you should eat the head as well, and I completely agree with him. We um, poach the pig heads, boil, poach, whatever you want to say. We cook it in a whole heap of boiling water for many hours, with lots of veg and lots of spice, and then we'll take the pig's head, let it cool down a bit, strip it of the bone and any cartilage, chop it up, and press it. And because pig is made up of about 99% gelatin, anything you do with pork just sets like a brick. And um, all that wonderful meat and a bit of stock we'll set. We'll season it up, lots of salt, lots of vinegar. Vinegar really helps to cut through. Um, acid helps cut through fat so we use lots of white wine vinegar or red wine vinegar to cut through all the kind of fat and gelatin and then we'll crumb it and deep fry it and it's probably one of our probably one of our best-selling one of our best-selling dishes that you know if you're gonna have pig's head on the menu you're gonna sell nothing but pig's head on the starters (laughs) wow oh that's the best i wish i I wish we had had them when you were in Next time you come in, I'll I'll try to get you some pig's head because they're just the best. Same thing with the trotters. We sometimes do do, uh, deep-fried trotters or um, I've got a Portuguese chef and she'll use a lot of trotters in like we call it surf and turf, so uh, clams or mussels with uh, pig's trotters or pig's head. And even like going back to waste, even when we – so we set the pig's head in in a big tray and we cut it up and portion it and you get quite a lot of trim from that and we'll freeze that trim and then that'll go into, you know, we'll do clams and pig's head or something like that. You know, I, I just hate waste. I just, I'm constantly looking at like, someone will put a pot into wash up and I'm like, go get a spatula and clean that pot out properly. And they'll be like scraping every inch of tomato sauce out of the bottom of this pot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lloyd, it, it's so refreshing to, uh, to speak to somebody in a, from a commercial cooking standpoint who is a chef that's putting food on people's plates in a restaurant, who is really deeply connected with where all the produce is coming from. And 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 not just that, like I said earlier, actually sometimes going out on the hill and being part of that whole process. I think it's so important for people's connection to food. And a lot of people's uh, connection with food is eating out. If they enjoy food, they like other people to cook for them. So... Uh, if that can feed down from the chefs to the people who are consuming food, I think it's a great way for us to appreciate where our food comes from more and then maybe make better buying decisions as well when it comes to putting food in our homes. So I love what you're doing. And uh, I can can attest that it is a fantastic restaurant and the food is very good having now eaten there. Thanks, man.
0: I think that um, what scares me is chefs who are removed from food chefs who are removed from being able to butcher an animal or understand how an animal built in the like neck muscles turn into loin turn into saddle turn into haunch you know chefs being removed from that that kind of thing really scares me chefs being able to understand that you know the knee joints connected to the hip joint that kind of thing like really scares me and i I understand that people are so removed from nature these days i understand that Not everyone can go out and shoot their own animals. But, I mean, a a good testament is that, you know, we all love Instagram and about once or twice a year I'll put a post up. I'll go stalking, whether it's for a roe deer or whether it's for Secret or whatever, and I'll put a photo up of it. I'll normally choose a a pretty tasteful but slightly graphic photo. I'm, I'm very careful of what photos I put up, but I'll put a photo up and whenever I do it, I'll take a screenshot of how many followers I've got, and I always lose, like, 10 to 20 followers every every year, without a doubt. And, like, my regular chums will all take the piss out of me. They're like, oh, it's time for Lloyd's yearly Instagram kill. Or cull, sorry. <laughs> and you just lose a bunch of people. And, and it, it does scare me a bit that people are so removed from understanding and accepting that what's on your plate used to be a living, breathing thing. And, I don't think it's something that you should be scared about. I think it's something you should embrace. You, you should go to a butcher and have a conversation about where it's from and how it's been farmed and who's raised it and how was it killed and was it and did it have a nice temperament? You know what kind of animal was it? I, I don't think it's something we should be afraid of. You should really embrace it. You know, go to a game dealer. You know, there's enough markets. You know, just here in Edinburgh. You know, there's enough farmers' markets that you can go to a game dealer and have a conversation with someone and ask them how you should cook something you know don't be afraid of it be brave be brave get out there and ask questions and 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 you know you'll be better for it at the end of the day i want to get to a point in my life where everything in my freezer i've either shot or i know where it's come from myself that's that's kind of like my goal in life and
1: that's the dream I, isn't it yeah
0: that's yeah that's the dream and and, and i mean i'm lucky cuz i own a restaurant you know i can i can call someone and order a sheep and I can butcher it myself and I can pack it away and I can pull it out however I please. But I know not everyone's that lucky and not everyone Not everyone's financially available, but, you know, there's enough butchers out there that you can go and have a conversation and learn more about meat. And just don't be afraid of it. Just, just, yeah, don't be afraid of it.
1: <laughs> well, Lloyd, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for both letting me come out on the hill with you and inviting me into your kitchen. I'm looking forward to sharing all of the pictures uh, that I took uh, of you doing a lot of butchering actually so those are some of my favourite pictures that I, that I took <laughs> when, I was, uh, when I was in your kitchen and if anybody is in Edinburgh go and visit the Parmesan because there's great food and great chefs